Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, where we discuss practical science and not so common sense to live a life more extraordinary. In this episode, we talk about health basics that we bet you were never taught at home or school. You only have one body, and while these simple disciplines may not be sexy, doing them right will be a gift that keeps on giving. Want to know what they are? Let's get started. Here are your co-hosts, who are also partners in life and business, Luke and Rachel. So welcome back. We are six episodes in now, and the first few episodes we talked about sleep, stress, and fatigue, and how they all interrelate. And while we wanted to cover kind of those fundamentals, because they each deserved an entire episode by themselves... I think it's time to kind of talk about all the things we wish we learnt in primary school, intermediate or high school around this complex thing that is our body. You know, the irony is that our $15 toaster comes with an instruction manual. Where's ours? Yeah. We're not even born, like we're not even, we're born and it's kind of like, Almost like the the Mufasa and the monkey. What was his name? Rafiki. Rafiki. Yeah. Gives gives this little beautiful package to our parents, and it's like, go have fun, make lots of mistakes, and which is just crazy because it shouldn't be that complicated to provide like a bit of a hey, here's how to care for this little bundle of joy, uh, and and so here we are trying to put together an episode to discuss all the little things that probably should have been discussed somewhere along the way, along with the birds and the bees. And uh, I'm kind of excited to see what we can at least give people some insight to in this fantastic thing called their body and mind. Yeah, because at the same time, there's not a lack of noise out there because everyone has like these opinions. And I think it's it's too easy to get overcomplicated into the... You know, the fun kind of biohacky kind of... The sexy stuff. The sexy stuff. Yeah, the fun stuff. You know, we really got all the technology and you spend a lot of money on it. So, it's it's going to get you the results because it doesn't matter how much money you spend or how fancy the biohack is. If you don't have the fundamentals, it doesn't matter how good that biohack is. You need to have the fundamentals because... The money is really spent in that. that mm. That's where you get the best bang for your buck. And the, uh, again, the irony that when people call us is they usually see us on Instagram or our podcast and they're like, oh, I want to learn all these bells and whistles. I want to get to that kind of peak performance. And yeah, you heard me sort of pre-qualifying someone the other week around how committed they are just to actually work on basics, mm. breathing, eating, sleeping. Again, very unsexy, but we're fr- quite frankly not interested in working with anybody who's not prepared to actually do the fundamentals right. Because everything else is nice to have, but those fundamentals are the force multipliers. Yeah, and real health is slow health. We'll repeat it over and over again. You can't expect everything to happen like that if you want it to last. No, and most of the time when people get to where they are, it's taken them years, if not decades, of rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat of those habits. And you can't just unwind all those habits in 12 weeks. Yeah, and that's kind of what we're trying to do by this podcast is see behind the veil of our lives because, you know, people see our morning routines now and how stacked it is and like, oh, yeah, that, that, that seems like a great place to start. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> this took years upon years upon years of just kind of just layering upon pre-existing habits. 
And yeah, I'm really looking forward to just taking that step back from the sexy and focus on those real basic fundamentals. But really, they are the where you're going to get the best results, plus Generally speaking, they're free. Mm. And if we compare, I know we've used a toaster analogy here, but if we compare our minds and bodies like a Formula One car, and I mean, for one, that industry is a multi-million billion dollar industry, and they finally tune every single lever on both the Formula One car itself as a mechanical in, you know, engine, as well as the, the driver who needs to be super astute, high reactions, alert, all these kind of elements that keep them in their, in their finely tuned space. And so for us, again, while the Formula One car might be super, super duper sexy, if you look under the hood, there's some pretty basics, basics that just need to go right because no amount of spray painting or sponsorship labels, that doesn't make the car go any faster. Yeah, I can't remember who the player or the coach was. It was in basketball, but it's all about starting with tying your shoelaces. Yeah, it's actually a really good way of yeah. you know, simplifying that concept. And to be honest, the amount of people in the NBA at the moment that keep losing their shoes <laughs> is, is a bit ridiculous. And it highlights the importance of the fundamentals of, you know, you got to tie, everyone's got to tie the shoes the same way, regardless of your, you know, LeBron James or Kobe or whoever, you know, like you've all got to tie your shoelaces. But there's a difference between doing it poorly and doing it right. And this is where that force multiplier. We're being kind of the the knowing knots and how to tie a strong rope. That would be hopefully giving you a bit of an advantage there. But yeah, coming back to what you said around the Formula One as well, is I think the difference between a toaster and us is we get one body. You know, like we we can replace that toaster. That's no problem. It comes with an instruction manual anyway, but we need to nurture our body to allow it to do what it does best because you got one. Enjoy it. But Make the most of it. If a toaster could self-repair, hmm. it would still need an instruction manual. Yeah. How do you help the toaster self-repair? Yeah. So you don't have to buy a whole new one. So again, it's like, okay, if we knew how to better encourage our body to repair itself for as long as possible, that would be great for everyone wanting to expand their health span, not just live longer, but live healthier for longer. Yeah. Rewinding back to human biology. So I did human biology for a really long time because that's kind of my entrance into my advanced degree and in, in, in university degrees. And we were learning things like photosynthesis and basic physiology and, uh, you know, animals, like what the animal kingdom did, you know, the kingdom phyla, all of like the tax, taxonomy and how to like classify things, which is, I guess, helpful in some ways, but so unhelpful from a not only growing body as a child and, and going through puberty, but just knowing how to command, control, or observe the mind or to figure out like basically how my my body works. And we, we leave the birds and the bees to our parents, but to be quite frank, they weren't taught either. So we're just propagating this lack of wisdom around how we, how we unlock, not, not only use our body in a way that doesn't um, erode long-term health but equally we've got no real mechanism to understand how to optimize it which is why we're here yeah and i think if you really look back at what we've been taught it's very two-dimensional and unfunctional so what we're trying to do here today is really come back to the fundamentals and help people and well enlist the information that we wish we were told when we were younger because 
you know, that's why I'm in this role and that's why I do what I do is because I don't want people to suffer like I suffered trying to figure these things out for myself, hoping that medical professionals would actually guide me in the right direction to, you know, the fundamentals mm. at the end of the day because it is so powerful, but yet we often get stuck in these bells and whistles of, oh, this is the popular thing right now. you got to go keto, but yet we forget about how you chew your food or how you breathe or you know it's there's all these different modalities that are you know very sexy but just let's take a step back and forget about all those kind of basic methodologies or those kind of fancy methodologies at least and focus on the fundamentals and this triggers a thought around the curious case of benjamin button <laughs> uh, which i feel like almost we need to do it that way because a healthy person has ten thousand desires every single day, but a sick person has one. Mm. I just want to feel better. And so when we're young and unencumbered and pain-free for the most part, we just want, 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 want. We've got desires. We're very much stuck in kind of the instinctual desire and want space. We're not necessarily in a place to listen to, hey, how do we take care of this body that quite frankly is working mostly really well because when you're young it repairs fairly, fairly quickly. There's a lot of forgiveness. Unless you've got some you know, pre-existing or genetic condition, we've talked about your situation in our very first episode. Uh, but for the most part, the motivation or the appetite for young kids, preteen, teen, and young adults to even understand how to get the best out of their body is kind of dulled by this, this, this desire set of being healthy and wanting more. And so should we frame today's episode more like if our 9 and 12-year-olds actually wanted to listen and wanted and were interested in truly getting the best out of their body, what would we be teaching them? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, we, we, te we teach the stuff as we go. We're, we feel like we're constantly coaching and nurturing their understanding. But honest to God, I think about 2% lands. Yeah. So let's assume that 100% is going to land. Our, our nine and 12 year old. And this is what we want them to know and understand to take here forth into their life. Yep. Where should we start? I, I think we've got to start in the real fundamentals and take a step back and remember that our body is primarily made up of water out of all things. So hydration is probably the best place to start because there's nothing that takes up the, a greater percentage than water. You know, we're 60%, 70% of water. So, yeah, you've got to hydrate. And the best way to do that is to structure that into your life, make it a habitual pattern. So keeping in mind when you wake up after, you know, say an eight-hour sleep, that's eight hours of dehydration, fasting. Your body is craving water. And Especially because during night, that's when a lot of activity is actually happening, which we spoke about in the mm -hmm. sleep episode. Yeah, because your brain's working 30% more in REM than it is awake. So there's a lot of taxing going on there, um, but often people just don't replenish it. They go for a coffee first instead of, you know, which again, dehydrates them further because of the caffeine in it. So we need to be getting that hydration in there first thing in the morning. Um, and if you want to supercharge that, there's many ways in which we can supercharge that. Chucking some salt in there, uh, ch chucking some apple cider vinegar in there, maybe some lemon. Um, there's, there's a whole host of different ways, but the fundamental nature of it is getting a glass of water and ideally sipping on it. Um, don't just throw it back as quick as you can. Try to 
sip on it for maybe 30, 30 minutes or so. So kind of keep it in a central location when you're doing your morning routine. Putting uh, your makeup on or makeup brushing on, your teeth or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, just keep sipping away on it because it's going to be better absorbed into the body through that nature. Um, and we'll talk as we go into the kind of breathing side of things that how important that hydration is because we lose, I think it's uh, 30% more water when we're mouth breathing. But we'll touch on that as we kind of come into that. But yeah, mm. so hydration is where we need to start. I think it's the most important. And I struggle with water. This has been a lifelong issue. I don't know if I just don't have kind of the 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 seeking, the desire, the, the high desire of seeking water. But for me, this is a constant daily add-on. Whereas I know for you, you've got a really strong sense to drink. So if we look at the overall water intake between the two of us, you are vastly the winner every single day. Now, we had issues with our daughter having headaches, chronic headaches for a while. And we were observing how infrequently she was drinking water. And we had no clue how little she was drinking water or how much throughout the day, for example. And so because of my issues with drinking enough and because we wanted to actually track how much she was drinking to see, look, is this a dehydration issue? We ended up finding Hydrate Spark, which is a type of drink bottle that has a little light at the bottom and hooks up to an app and can kind of give you a feel for how much water you're drinking in a day. Equally, the little lights remind you to, hey, you need to drink some more water and you can add people to your team, so to speak. So I could add our daughter into the team and I could see how she was tracking. We can kind of make a bit of a competition. Now, that did not fix the fundamental problem I, I had other than the fact that it did cr clarify to me that by nature, I don't drink enough. But it did help us get our daughter to drink more because it did remind her and it was a competition. So Gamified it, right? It gamified it, which was fun. And it helped us feel connected because, again, we have the same problem. And so that's one way that you know I've implemented uh, technology or a tool to help augment or to improve that decision making. And it's, again, but still it's a constant add-on. And so for me, trying to get that water in at the start of the day is one way I'm starting to, again, stack a habit or make it associated with a part of my morning routine. And and the, the coin dropped for me around water, which it just seems like such an innocuous, cylindrical thing to say, water, because we all know we need to drink. But coming back to my background in, in advanced chemistry and, and whether it be bio, organic, bio, organic chemistry or biochemistry, all of the reactions, none of them happen without water is what we call the solvent. That is the background requirement, the non-negotiable that any kind of reaction, including DNA reading, it needs for it to even exist. And so when you think about taking away the, the fundamental chemical makeup of any kind of biological reaction, you're going to have problems. Yeah, absolutely. And because we're focusing on our 9 and 12-year-old, let's take a, a step back because how does a kid know how much they should be drinking water, right? And that's why I think tracking it was really critical for us because, you know, she would tell us, oh, yeah, having plenty of water. And her plenty of water was like a glass of water throughout the day. It was like, that's not plenty of water, especially not in summertime when you're running around the school field all day. And Yeah, so it's just sometimes we can use technology. Like when we, you know, see a trend of something going on, we can use technology to not only augment a new habit, but also to better understand um, children <laughs> or ourselves. Yeah. Because it's so hard with so much going on in our lives to really keep track of something so simple. Um, 
It would be so fascinating to work with a school, mm. setting all the kids up with a hydrate spark, pulling it all together in one big kind of dashboard and competition. Now, the goal is not to go too hard on drinking too much water. So it's not about premium, which is just as bad. Yeah. So it's, it's not about let's flood your body with water. It's about where you, where you meet an ideal optimum amount of water. And so see whether or not over the course of four to six weeks, if you actually track all of the kids water intake and, and get them more aware of it, how much academic performance would shift, even attention span. I mean, that would be profound, especially for kids. Um, if the teachers actually have a far more focused and on task set of students, what that would be like to even trial. Yeah, because we, we know it's critical for brain function, right? Like, as you mentioned, it's in every cellular process. And that's like from a physical standpoint, uh, from 1% of dehydration impacts your physical performance by 10%. And so it's not only just mental, but it's physical too. So I know when I was an athlete, you know, that was a key focus of mine and hence why it's so habitual pattern for me is drinking water. Uh, cause I was really, I knew that fact and I was like, <laughs> I'm not getting, I'm not going to lose those easy percents of uh, performance. Yeah, I mean, really, it's table scraps. Hmm. At the end of the day, if you can just grab up those scraps, the amount of impact it would make to your overall performance and that's athletic performance that isn't talking cognitive Mm. and when you look at your brain requirement for for sugar glucose ketones whatever it's it's choosing for its its fuel source it takes up so much of that caloric requirement Mm. and add on sleep issues and then dehydration no wonder we're running around with a cloudy brain and a brain that feels like candy floss yep absolutely yeah okay so thinking about hydration um We've sort of talked about when you can try to stack that into your life and to improve overall. We can put a link for Hydrate Spark at the bottom. And if certainly there are any schools or even classrooms, teachers that listen to this and think, actually, could we trial something like this? Super keen to connect with you. So, you know, for those people that are actually open to trialing this with us, yeah, reach out. We'd be stoked to kind of see how we could make this work. So, okay, then we're talking about dehydration or hydration, what's next for the sort of the fundamentals? Yeah, I think in this very distracted world, I think we've got to come down to, you know, when we eat our food. <laughs> so creating the environment around eating food. And I think that starts with being mindful because we're in this society of everything's like quick and fast and, you know, whether it is getting Uber Eats or going out for takeout. Or a quick, convenient food. Or a quick, convenient Usually food. Usually bar, like like between thing. meetings, you're just like golfing it down because, yeah. you know, you're hungry. You don't have time for sit-down lunch. Yeah. So, like snacking as well. So, first and foremost, I think this, just because we said that I want to go to that first is let's, let's sit on snacking first. Then we're going to come back to the more process of eating because I think we're – you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, we were told, you know, to keep your metabolism fast, we need to have six to seven small meals a day. But really, if you think about it from a biological perspective, it really makes no sense. And it's when we've got to often take that step back to first principles, because what that's doing is it's keeping your body in a continual processing of food. So it's not allowing your gut to do what it normally does and um, like how it repairs and recovers because it's got a continuous stream coming of food coming through it's like a it's like a roadworks so if you had a roadworks and the traffic just kept coming through and it's going to take a lot longer for that roadworks to get done versus if that roadworks was closed off and instead of eight hours with continuous traffic coming through they could probably do the work in an hour because you know 
it doesn't take that long when you've got the space to do what you need to do. So it's the same process with our gut. Giving your gut the chance to digest the food and do the repair it needs to do in between because we're not grazing creatures. We're not, you know, we're not cattle. Uh, cattle are grazing creatures where they will graze throughout the day. We go from feast to famine. You just got to look at evolution for that. So we should be having primary meals, not snacking. So that's a very fundamental thing. And as a thing that will be extremely pivotal for many people, it's a hard behavior to change. But when you do change that, that is a game changer. So moving away from snacking, going to primary meals. And that brings us to the importance of the meals you do have. Yep. Because if you're having largely high carb type meals, you're going to be hungry not that not that soon after. So of course the snacking requirement is perpetuated by the kind of mismatch or the under-informed meals that you might be having. So let's let's double tap into that. Yeah, so it all starts with, you know, breakfast, right? We've been told for years upon years that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It is because it breaks the fast. Whether you're doing intermittent fasting or not doing intermittent fasting, we're not going to talk about that here um, because that's more of a hack than as we kind of go through the process. The key thing is breakfast is breaking the fast. So whether that breakfast is at 7 a.m. or 12 p.m., doesn't matter. Whatever it is for you, um, when you break that fast, it is extremely important you do it right. So we don't have a high-carb breakfast. We have something that is uh, good in fat and protein. So something that is going to satiate us, something that is going to keep us fuller for longer. So we're not coming back craving sugar. And then within, you shouldn't need food within four hours. So if you're craving food within four hours, there's something in your meal that is not right. Or you've created a habitual pattern around snacking. So you should be able to be satiated quite comfortably for four hours. Or you're looking for food for comfort. Yes. Okay, so there's sort of three categories, maybe two main categories and one kind of caveat category. Food or nourishment either a ritual or purely just for fuel. Now, comfort is the sort of caveat category where um, you could be eating food as a part of a comfort ritual. So you come home after a really long day, you may have still had lunch, but all you want is some chocolate or chips or something to create comfort around that difficult day. And that's creating comfort ritual. Or boredom. Or boredom. So there's that. Um, And so this is where we get into, okay, what are you eating or what habit are you stacking around food and nourishment that could be eroding your ability to nourish well and and nourish for satiety and long-term health? Yeah. So when we talk about, you know, a high protein, high fat breakfast, it doesn't mean you don't have carbohydrate in your day. We're not going to like, again, we're not getting into the modalities of different diets and things here. It's just understanding the impact through that that will have on the day. So you can put the carbohydrates later in the day, just don't have it in that first meal. And then I think it's really coming to that, yeah, the structure of that meal itself. So we're not snacking, we're focusing on primary meals. So when we're focusing on a primary meal, ideally, we're cooking. Firstly, because we know what's going in there. There's no hidden oils, sugars, preservatives. Um, yeah, it's not processed. It's prepared by us so we it's know real food know it's real food yeah um because too often if, you, if you're getting out of a packet and it has an ingredients list it's processed so moving away from packets coming to real food uh that you can easily identify and speak <laughs> so as we talked about in uh one of our previous podcasts you know reading 
if there's a nutritional label, firstly, it's processed. Secondly, uh, if there's more than five ingredients, it's quite highly processed for the most part. If there's words you can't describe or can't pronounce, should I say, it's definitely processed and you should not be having it. Uh, if your grandparents need it, so stay away from it. And yeah, there are actually still, oh, numbers too. If there's numbers, yeah. numbers and letters, stay oh, The thing that drives me crazy is there are already flavorings and colorants that go into foods that have been proven to have carcinogenic or highly damaging toxic properties. But in some countries, they still haven't banned them. Yeah. Uh, the fact that some of these things can still make their way into food, and not only for, for adults, but kids, like during such formative processes of, of their minds and bodies, and because many of these like highly processed foods for children are highly colored, mm. highly flavored, made you know, super palatable oh my god addictive. and addictive and i just it really just riles me up because it's criminal yeah it is criminal it's you know it's putting them in a bad place from the start of the day you know cereals are the worst thing that mm. you can start the day with yeah uh, because they're just a sugar bomb with preservatives and colors and flavorings and but yeah so obviously we're moving away from the processed food we're getting into real food uh, food that we prepare, ideally. Um, you know, I understand the convenience of Uber Eats. Like, you want to minimize that as much as possible because, again, you don't know what's being put in that food. But I understand sometimes you just need convenience and, and or if you're going out somewhere to eat at a restaurant, just making sure you're thinking through things and making it a meal out of it. And that's kind of what I want to go into is the process of preparing your food and actually enjoying your food because we're so distracted and we're so time poor that we we just find ourselves lost in our phones or TVs or completely disconnected from our nourishment completely disconnected so we're not mindful so this is the whole nature of being mindful and it's being mindful from the starting point of actually preparing your food so ideally cooking your food because when we start to smell that food being cooked that is starting to get that kind of Pavlovian response. If you've ever known of uh, Pavlo's dog, you know how he gets the saliva glands working and um, when they smell food, it's because it's the behavior and the response. So we need to get that response coming up. So we, we're getting our amylase out, which is going to help break down that food. So which is an enzyme an that enzyme. your mouth produces. Yeah, so we need to get that enzyme working. So getting that salivary glands producing that. So... While cooking, we want to be smelling our food, enjoying our food, trying to calm that system down, not being in that fight or flight sympathetic state, not having any kind of fights or um, arguments. Or heavy discussions that are highly emotionally triggering. Yeah, it's trying to stay away from that, trying to stay away from any kind of cognitive, really intense work. And then coming into the meal itself, whether you know it comes from an Uber Eats or whatever, taking it out of its package, making it into a plate, and sitting down at the table away from distractions. So there is no TV, there's no books, there's no phones, there's nothing but you, the food, and hopefully some family as well, um, because that's a great time for connection with the family. It's part of our family. Um, it is the like dinner is that one meal that we make sure we come together and commune and share our favorite part of the day and what we're grateful for and just get that 
get an insight into, in particular, the kids' life at school where we don't, we're not connected with them. Which is um, going to be increasingly important as they become pre- and post-teens, where perhaps that's the only time of the day we actually see them. Mm. Like, period, because yeah. they're either out and about early or, you know, they've got their own friends, they're staying over at people's houses, uh, and they may not want to have as much to do with us. And so that is our kind of, like... Our, our magnet, our magnet to the family unit to say this is our time that we, we protect and we honor and we connect with our food and our family. Yeah. So coming to the meal itself, like I said, no distractions because we know for our 12-year-old, he loves to read a book and in particular while eating or be on his devices if he can. So like yeah. he often will get up a little bit earlier than us and we come down and we'll catch him quite often having his breakfast with a book or a device um and he now knows he's not allowed devices at that time in the morning so it'll more, more often not to be a book um, but again i'm going to get into the nuance here yeah and let's get real it's yeah. a modern family so yeah. so our son has two fathers he's got his birth father and he's got you same as our daughter so What's frustrating and possibly one of the many reasons why I ended up ending the relationship with my ex-husband was because of a constant misalignment of values. And you know, every week, week on, week off, we get, we get the kids. Every week he goes to the other household and I can bet you a lot of money that the modeling is there. So every week we kind of try to instill these good habits. We try to explain these things, but every other week there is a return to a real antithesis or, or a complete opposite of a frame of reference around health and discipline around a life by design versus by default. Yeah. Because he, he reads books and he does. from what I understand. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that habit in particular is definitely something that is ingrained and, you know, we'll definitely have to do a podcast at some point about, the nature of, you know, shared, shared parenting. Um, parenting because we're not alone in this. Um, we've got a lot of friends that do the same thing week on, week off, or maybe there's some other variety where they do two on, three on, or, you know, weekends or whatever it may be, but there is a lot of nuances to tease out through there. Um, but today we're not going to be focusing on that. that <laughs> but I wanted to raise it. Because, 100%. Yeah. Like, let's be practical. The, yeah. the, the, the time of a pure nuclear family that isn't blended of some sort is really a thing of the past. Mm. That's a whole different ballgame and episode there in itself around how blended families, as you mentioned, are intertwined. But it's, it's just trying to instill these values as best as we can where we have control. Absolutely. So, yeah, being mindful as we can when we're eating our food because that's going to support the digestion. So not only are we smelling the food as we're preparing it, but as we're eating it, we're really focusing on that food and trying to allow the body to do what it does best. And to do that, you need to chew your food. Because again, this is one of my biggest frustrations. If I go to any restaurant or cafe, in particular a steakhouse, if I go to a steakhouse and I just, I look around because I'm, you know, I'm curious. I want to see. You're a people watcher. I'm a people watcher. Yeah, because, you know, I love analyzing behavior to kind of just tease things out and kind of understand perspectives and you know so i find it fascinating but two to three chews for the most part of a piece of steak is horrendous like you need to be chewing that food into a mush you know into like a liquid and the amount of people that just do two chews swallowed gone and like that is so taxing on your body because now it has such a significant load to digest 
that is the start, like one of the key processes, besides obviously the production of the amylase to kind of help break down it and all those enzymes, chewing is critical, like in the early phases to help your gut digest that food. Um, so no wonder so many people having stomach issues or they're overweight or, yeah, just they're just not digesting the food because they're not giving their body the chance. Yeah, and it's also acknowledging or respecting we've talked a lot about an orchestra the body is really a really a diverse and complex orchestra uh, with all sorts of different instruments that are playing in this case lots of hormones and activities that are happening from a cellular level and while I'm super simplifying this there's at least three main chemicals that are required to tell your body that it's happy and sated with its food and so giving your body time for those particular chemicals to release, to, to acknowledge firstly that there's food, to, to actually sense what food there is, to adapt to what's what's happening and what's coming, to uh, provide that kind of feedback mechanism, not only that, hey, yeah, there's enough protein in here. I want to actually talk about that too, around how it sort of senses protein almost. And then satiety and satisfaction and, and happiness. Because you know, we do get dopamine hits related to eating. So if we're eating something that's tasting super delicious, our brain's like, well, yeah, I want more of this. This is, this is amazing. And your, your gut saying, Hey, I've had enough. There's at least a 20 minute delay there. So being mindful and giving your body time to process, time to sit in it and, and to perhaps delay getting that second helping until you've had a little bit of time between, okay, hmm, I could have a little bit more and that was super delicious and do I make the decision and delaying that until, you know, you've given your body enough time to register it all. And chewing food really helps with that because when you actually chew your food properly, your meals like at least double in time, uh, at least. So all of a sudden you're feeling fuller quicker. And there's other little hacks you can kind of do, which is just using smaller utensils. And that's going to slow you down as well and allow you to, you know, digest that food a little bit more. You're a big fan of small spoons versus yeah, larger spoons. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> just make the food go so much further, you know? Yeah. And, and I do want to cover, um, and correct me if I'm, you know, putting this in the wrong place, but there is a remarkable theory called protein leverage theory. And there is... An amount of research that suggests that the way that your body feels satisfied, that the satiety kind of program runs correctly is, is based on the amount of protein you have in your meal. So the, the theory is that as your, your stomach fills up, your body senses like how much protein it is in there. And effectively, until it reaches a certain protein threshold, it'll keep telling you to eat more, 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 more until it gets a certain protein threshold. So if you've got really low percentage protein in that meal, then your body is instinctively going to be keeping asking you to eat more and more, which means more carbs, more fats, whatever you have in that meal until it reaches a protein threshold. Now, there's a degree of limit to that where your, your stomach's distended or expanded so much that you physically can't fit any more in. But there's some interesting elements and implications to that. If you don't have good proteins in your meals, then there's a very good reason why you might be overeating and struggling with weight management. Yeah, and the same with fat as well. Both protein and fat are very satiating in their nature. But the key thing is with understanding with fat is it carries a lot more calories with it as well. So you've got to be really aware of that. And protein in particular is really important to scatter throughout the day because, as you mentioned, there's a threshold there. And if you're interested in any kind of physical 
kind of performance or just general maintenance of muscle mass. You need to have that, those amino acids, those proteins scattered throughout the day to allow your body to process it, to uptake it, to help replenish your muscles, um, to build stronger. This brings up a really contentious topic. Okay, so protein type. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So we've probably got a variety of eating style listeners right now, whether you're a vegetarian, vegan, lacto over vegetarian. Like there's just so many different ways that you can eat. Uh, and I hate putting names on things because at the end of the day, you eat how you eat and why do you need to categorize it? But there are some that prefer for a variety of reasons, whether it be religious, um, ethical, whatever it might be, that they do not eat animal-based meat. And let's just boil it down. Let's let's discard any political, uh, ethical. ethical, cultural, whatever lens you want to put on eating styles or preferences to plant-based protein, the facts are pretty darn clear. Animal protein, by, by large, is far more bio, bioavailable than plant protein. In fact, there's probably around a 10, 20, maybe up to 30% tax in eating plant-based protein for your body to actually be able to absorb it. Mm. And so, again, let's just keep it real mm. and say it how it is without being overly sensitive around this. Yeah, because essentially the amino acids are just not bioavailable. available. They're trapped in fiber. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're trapped in fiber, not identical. And, you know, yes, you can do things to kind of extrapolate the um, amino acids a little bit more out by cooking it to kind of denature the fiber. Um, but you just, you're just not, it's not available for us as much as something that we have evolved on for centuries on as meat, you know, like that is, it's pretty clear when you look at the science and happy to debate that with anybody that wants to try because I'm pretty confident on my um, research on this one. Yeah, yeah. And so that's sort of talking about the content of the food. So we're talking about, uh, again, the ritual of food, that food is a fuel, but how you can implement more discipline in how you eat your food and what it contains to help to improve satiety and satisfaction, overall energy production over the day. Yep. Yeah, okay. So what's next when it comes to very, very, the basics, you know, the basics of health? So we've got kind of an eating mantra ritual involved here. And just to touch on, if you do need to eat quick, like get that you might have meetings, get that there's something going on that you need to kind of get food in fast. Well, firstly, leftovers are fantastic. So this is where historically we've been really focused on meal prep, so meal prep Sundays, and that just makes sure that we have uh, well-balanced and thought-out food throughout the course of the, the week. Now, get that even in those moments where you're having a quick bite between your meetings, trying your best to create a ritual and putting it on a plate at work. And, and even if it means you're having a couple of big deep breaths, looking at the four, seven, eight breathing technique or the, you know, the longer exhale versus the inhale like we spoke about in previous episodes is trying to calm that nervous system, even for, if for a moment between those meetings to enjoy that meal. So again, let's get practical. Let's get real. Sometimes having this glorious ritual isn't a possibility, but let's make sure that you're hedging your bets and doing the best you can should you be in a time crunch. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you touched on such an important thing, which is the breath, right? As we've talked about in our previous podcasts, it's so powerful from controlling that nervous system because if we're in that sympathetic state, so that fight or flight state, we can't, we're not in that rest and digest, that parasympathetic state, you know, it's in the words, digest. Um, so, because or you, essentially when you're in the sympathetic state, so say you've been in meetings and you're kind of in that, you know, argumentative fight or flight state potentially, all your blood is sent to your peripherals because your body doesn't know the difference between a lion and a meeting. It's the same thing. So it's, it's in the sympathetic state of that, fight or flight state. So how is it supposed to digest food when it's all the blood's at the peripheral getting ready for you to be able to run away from that lion? It can't. So, well, it, it, it can to a lesser extent. But you it's know? slowed down. It's and really slowed down. what happens when transit time is slowed hmm. is you can often get distension or increased gas. You can often get... Um, your abdominal pain, for example, if things just aren't moving through. And, and sometimes you can even get issues with, uh, you know, gut dysbiosis because you're actually the resident time of certain food at certain parts of your digestive system with certain alkalinity or acidity, acidity will impact the microflora and oftentimes the bad stuff. Uh, that actually spends its time in, in those specific areas. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Let's go into the breath, because I think that's the next logical step, because it is so powerful at controlling our nervous system. But more importantly, how we breathe is even more important to um, the nervous system. So firstly, when we're mouth breathing, um, we're coming more through that sympathetic system as we're talking about. But when we breathe through our nose, we're coming more into that parasympathetic state. And the reason for that being is we're biologically designed to be breathing through our nose. We have the filtration systems through our um, nasal cavity. So we're well, not through just through the nasal cavity, but through the whole nasal passage right through. It is how we are designed to breathe. And it also helps us get more oxygen into our blood, which is extremely important. So 18% to be exact, uh, or roughly, you know, depending on the situation. But, you know, there's research to point towards that we get 18% more blood oxygen because of the nitric oxide that is produced through breathing through the nose, which we just don't get when we breathe through the mouth. And the nitric oxide is a vasodilator, so it yes. helps to expand out the lungs and the capillaries that enhance the transfer of oxygen from your lungs into your bloodstream. Yes, exactly. So firstly and foremostly, we need to be breathing through that nose. But we see it time and time again. And it's one of the things I'm always looking for in my initial consults with clients is, you know, I'm looking at their posture, I'm looking at how they breathe, because um, all these things tell me different things, right? Along with a whole host of other ways they move. And, well, that's why yeah. they call you the body whisperer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're very observant to all those micro facial expressions, micro health expressions. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Because they all, you know, it's the, the detective hat on, right? You know, they all have clues to different things. But... Yeah, so many people are breathing through their mouths and they have a forward kind of posture because they, like, they've lost the jaw structure, they have lost the posture to be able to maintain that nasal breathing, or they've just got chronic inflammation leading to that, um, or it's an environmental thing that's forced them to kind of take on these postures or breathing styles. Okay, here in point, masks yes, over COVID. Yeah. Okay, so wow, what a wonderful way to almost gag people from using their nose just with that constriction of space and and breath mm. and just the the psychological element of someone covering your mouth and your nose that forced so many people including us 
to do more mouth breathing. Yeah, like I know for myself, and I would love to know from others, but from everyone that I kind of talk to and from my own personal experience is I was conscious of trying to breathe through my nose, but it was hard. It was really hard. So for those that don't understand the importance of nasal breathing, I can guarantee Tea, they must have been breathing through the mouth because it was just it was just too hard to kind of breathe through your nose through those kind of masks. So, yeah, it, it's got me really concerned, and I, I'd love to know if there's any. I need to have a look into the literature to see if anything's come out yet because you know science takes time. But I reckon that there's going to be a significant upturn in mouth breathers, and, and it was already about fifty percent is estimated to be mouth breathers. You know, like. After these last few years, I reckon it's going to skyrocket because mm. if you're spending all day working or for a kid, you know, because we even know this is pointed towards our nine and 12 year old at school because they had to wear masks all day at school. And it's like, yeah, the, we were the first to say, look, get that mask off. Yeah. I mean, do not even get us started on this highly contentious topic yeah. too. But when you think about you know, if you're, if you're reducing your child or anybody's ability to get oxygen to the right places like their brain for learning by 18% because they're probably mouth breathing because of that restriction. Like that's a significant learning disability almost right there. But then throw something else on top of that. First of all, we know these like, again, contentious, the masks are not very protective, you know, unless you have the K, uh, was it the? Uh, K95. K95 or... Well, even then, yeah. it was only great if you were the one who was sick. Exactly. That was, that was my point. So it's not really great from a immunity perspective anyway, let alone <laughs> when you're breathing through your mouth, your immunity is at a much higher risk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, the whole situation set us up for failure. So what I was doing was breathing through my nose so my immune system could do what it does best and filtrate it. But because everyone was forced to breathe through their mouth because of these horrible masks, uh, yeah, like, no wonder we had so many issues. No wonder. Yeah. It's, yeah. But again, a very contentious topic. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this because this is a massive rabbit hole that, you know, we could get stuck in very quickly. But just keeping in mind that habitually your breath has probably shifted somewhat in the last few years, if not previously, into more of a mouth breather. And it's something we need to unravel and unwind because it is so critical. And even if you can... It, as us sitting here, just breathe through your nose and close your mouth. That is great, but it doesn't mean that that is how you stay when you are unconscious. So that leads to sleep apnea. So that's snoring at night, not getting oxygen to that brain, which is just so critical. And we're seeing more and more people struggling with that now. And uh, and if you're a partner of somebody with it, I, I'm sure you struggle just as much as the person that is struggling with it because it's a hard thing to get a restful night's sleep with. And it's interrelated with weight management too. Like, yeah. And it's like... Inflammation it, too. Yeah. So what? it's like chicken or the egg. So we do know that chronic mouth breathing will significantly change or you know indicate or contribute to things like weight gain. Look, it's it's not a one-to-one, -one, but it's a contributor. And so when you're gaining weight, you're still breathing through your mouth, uh, you're starting to trigger more snoring, more sleep apnea, more sleep disruption generally, which we know from our sleep episode will impact your cortisol it'll impact all the things that are required for weight management too like it's all so interrelated yeah and then on top of that it could be you just haven't chewed your food enough so you don't have the jaw structure 
and your posture is shifted as a result of that. So therefore, your mouth breathing. Mm. So, and this is where jaw structure comes into it. So we kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but chewing your food is going to be very important for building up that jaw structure. It's the tone, isn't it? Because the ultimately, tone, yeah. there's a there are big masticating muscles that we have mm. in the jaw, and you, if you snooze, you lose. Like that's what happens with muscle, right? So if you're not yeah. using your muscle to exercise and tone that entire jaw area, then you lose the tone. Yeah, and I, and I know prior to the podcast, you were talking about uh, elderly. So I don't know if you want to share that right yeah. now because I thought that was, that was a very good point to kind of, you know, um, hit it home. Yeah. So I, when I was in Los Angeles uh, for a long while, I decided to get all my amalgams, my the, the silver fillings in my, my teeth, which have mercury and other, other metals in there. And so I did a complete removal of these things and replacement. And so I spent a lot of time at the dentist for like a course of sort of three to six months. And there was a poster in there that showed the – the, the regression of the jaw based on age. So kind of like, you know, you see in evolution, you see the monkey and that turns into the, the bigger kind of, you know, and then the adult and et cetera, the, the human. And it was kind of like that. You saw what the jaw looks like as a baby, what it develops into during the, the major osteogenesis, which is the, 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 the production of, of uh, bone. And then all the way to when elderly start losing their teeth. So, in, in that area, it was really promoting things like um, implants. So, of course, it was some type of advertisement, really. But it was promoting implants because of the importance of chewing and the tooth, the, the teeth being challenged and the whole jaw structure being challenged to continue to create bone. And as soon as you stop creating that, that pressure, that, that, that challenge on the bone, the bone starts to regress. So on as Wolf's Law. And, and so, you know, you can think about this with any sort of elderly, then they take their dentures out or over time, if they don't have proper teeth to, to chew, you notice their entire jaw starts to get smaller. It caves in, it changes the entire kind of facial structure, which is, it's quite remarkable how quickly that happens. And so again, like anything, we talked about some stress is good. Um, stress, hormetic stress is so important to create a stronger body and mind. And so having that stress of proper chewing, making it hard to chew, like having tougher meats or tougher things, um, natural products to eat, like Biltom. We love Biltom, which is, is dried and cured meat. Um, when we do it with, with good products and people who, who don't put too many preservatives or hopefully none. Uh, and so having that opportunity to build up the muscles around the jaw is so important to keep that jaw bone healthy and dense and keep it for as long as possible. Yeah, and the, the worst thing that we're seeing is, obviously that's throughout a lifetime, but we're also seeing generationally our mouths are getting smaller and smaller due to the processed nature of the foods that we are eating and to the postures in which we're maintaining. So not only are we ending up with, you know, very uh, small jaw structure, we're actually starting off with a smaller jaw structure now. So what we're going to see over the years to come is going to be very diabolical in the way of the mouse. Because again, you're like diabolical is probably an extreme way to say it. But again, if we're starting smaller and we're going to that place, like you can just, you know, the starting point is so critical. More teeth crowding. Teeth crowding, More yeah. orthodontia. Yeah. Uh, you know, more teeth issues potentially because, mm. you know, you've got less space for things to properly clear, mm. a more anaerobic kind of activity because you've got smaller confined space that might not be getting blood flow. 
Yeah, so with you know with kids, because again, this is for our nine and twelve year old. If they're having dental issues, like if they're having crowding, you know, they don't have the good jaw structure. We're going to be getting them, um, you know, the orthodontic help to kind of create that space to create that jaw structure because it is just so critical for the development. Because otherwise, they're going to struggle with anxiety, depression, weight management. Which no. are not causative, but correlative. Yeah, so exactly. it has relationship with these kind of out, output symptoms. And so it, it makes me laugh when you're talking about that um, because at the dinner table, sometimes when we have a steak, which is yeah. you know maybe not an eye fillet or fillet, depending on which part of the world you're pronouncing that, but it's like, <laughs> I can just remember seeing our daughter chew and she's like, oh my God, I can't get through this. And every single time you're like, good. Yep. That's what you need for great, great jaw tone and structure. But of course, you just don't hear about that conversation in, no. in the everyday world. No, <laughs> yeah. I'm used to being that uh, outlier for sure. <laughs> mm, which, until you read some of this research or the literature, uh, you just have no clue. Um, and which is why we're here having this conversation. Yeah, and like on this topic in particular, I think James Nestor's done a really good. Um, recap of all of this about how to breathe correctly and why jaw structure is so important so yeah read his book breathe um uh it's a super powerful mm. book so if you are wanting to double tap into this a little bit more read that book yeah it's also assessing whether or not you are the one that's being impacted by nose versus mouth breathing so very simply you can um you know block one nostril and see if you can breathe clearly through each nostril there are some really cool techniques which i'm sure we'll go into about how to clear nostrils relatively quickly but what we sometimes do but we don't do it often because we, the evidence is showing that we are nose breathing as we do mouth taping at night so what is that yeah so it's, it's a very simple way to identify if you're mouth breathing you know warn your partner can look a bit weird <laughs> um but it's just simply getting a little piece of medical tape. Often people think they have to get like, you know, the big tape and put it all over their mouth. But no, you just get a little piece of, you know, that white medical tape and just putting it just on lip to lip. Um, so for a man, if you have a beard and stuff, you don't have to worry about getting, ripping it off your hairs. Um, but yeah, just lip to lip and to create that little seal. And it's just enough to kind of give you that sensory response that you can't open that mouth. And you'll quickly, like in an, like before you get to that point, there's also taking a step back and it's like, are you waking up super parched? Good chance of mouth breathing because you... Your mouth is dry and nasty. Yeah, you work through 30% more water with your mouth um, being open. So, so it just dries it out. So yeah, we, that's a good tell, firstly. Um, the next tell is, yeah, putting the tape on your mouth and seeing if you can sleep throughout the night without having to take it off. And if you can, that's great. That means your nasal breathing, if it's a struggle, that means that you're not nasal breathing as much as you should, but you can probably handle it. But if you can't even breathe through that, there's a whole unraveling of whatever the process is that is limiting you. So whether that is a structural issue, um, there's surgeries you can get done for that, uh, get ballooning um, and a whole host of different things. Um, but talk to your doctor about that. If it's an inflammation issue, it's address the inflammation. Um, if it's How an environmental much? issue, like mold, um, what is your guess? Okay, this is just a guess. Yeah. So no one's quoting us on this one. Yeah. But what is your guess to the percentage of a non-structural issue? So we've got a structural issue about not being able to breathe, whether someone's broken their nose or there's some physiological issue that's preventing the air to go through. But so, so it's not even looking at the structural issue. What percentage do you think is the everything else of the issue? 
hazard to guess? I would say 50-50 because so much of it is structural as well because of the postural shifts of lack of jaw structure. Um, but there is a lot of people walking around with chronic inflammation and then just not aware of it. And that's, you know, kind of what we covered in our previous uh, episode around inflammation. And um, yeah, it is, yeah, I would go 50-50-ish. It's pretty hard to kind of go either side because, you know, it's chicken or the egg in many capacities because those One that, feeds into the other as yeah, well. Yeah, so those that have inflammation are generally going to have t- poor jaw structure and yes. poor lifestyle choices yeah. and practices and things like that because i mean i would contest that inflammation is probably the biggest epidemic of the world oh yeah well, at chronic least, inflammation yeah, at least to all the chronic diseases that we all know yeah. and dread yeah you know the cancers the heart, cardiac the respiratory the yeah any metabolic syndrome for the most part inflammation is a big part of that and we, yeah. we talked a lot at length about chronic fatigue in our last episode and, and what sort of contributes to that. And I can't wait to talk more about inflammation more generally and particularly how genetics contributes to that from an upstream issue and predisposition. Okay. So do we want to talk more about nose breathing or are we happy to move on to the next topic? So, yeah, I, there, there's plenty we can go into in regards to breath. But, you know, again, like I said, read that book by James Nestor, um, Breathe. I think that's going to help can answer those questions and we'll be talking more about this in future podcasts for sure because it's it's a big topic to unravel and here we're just trying to focus on you know some key things you can focus on some fundamentals and i think as a part of that and these are things we definitely covered in our sleep podcast but circadian rhythm and the simplicity of we are complicated house plants so therefore you know that photosynthesis you talked about light is absolutely critical um so we need to manage our light intake and because the light is so abundant now we you know we live in this technology age where you know we have these led lights that can be on 24 7 if we want to be on the sun can be on with a flick of a switch yeah because the sun emits the same frequency as these led lights these white lights because and it's, it's a white light but it emits a blue light frequency and because it emits that frequency it, our body doesn't know the difference you know, it is just like being in sunlight. Um, yes, sunlight is more powerful, but the chronic nature of having that light will shift your circadian rhythm. So it's really about understanding the fundamentals of circadian rhythm. And I think, yeah, light is one of those critical things. So understanding when you're exposing yourself to light is going to shift your sleep and wake cycles. So we've talked about it before, sleep consistency is number one when it comes to sleep. There's nothing more important in my eyes than having a consistent sleep and wake cycle within an hour. Because your body, again, like a complicated houseplant, has very set routines and subsystems and programs that run at certain times of the day. And I mentioned last time, 15% of your genes are impacted, whether they're turned on on or off, by your circadian rhythm. Uh, I do want to just quickly put a pin in one of the most profound images you showed me a number of years ago that finally gave me the penny drop moment. And that was the one where you showed me the, the like spectrum oh, yeah. based on the time of day. And so, and we'll, we'll put it in the show notes uh, and up on the screen for those that are watching. But essentially, when you break down the, the, the light across the day, you can see how in dusk and dawn, it, the sun is naturally more amber or red. Whereas in the middle of the day, as it continues to go, it gets more blue. And so all you've got to do is say, look, we evolved 
in a in a in an environment in which we didn't have lights like we do. Not we didn't have these light switches. We couldn't artificially create the sun. And so, from a evolutionary biological biological perspective, we have to try to do our best to mimic the natural environment in which our entire bodies are set to become a metronome to. So. Again, I just wanted to plant that because there's a couple of penny drop moments and that was one of them for me. Yeah, and I think it's important, like much like cortisol, it's easy to demonize blue light because, you know, it's like everyone wears their blue light blocking glasses 24-7. But Oh, I know. I'm just I'm, I'm making that face because yeah. trying to educate the guy we were buying my new glasses with because oh, I wear yeah. contact lenses, um, you know, most, almost exclusively. But having this conversation with the guy we were selling our glasses to, he was trying to sell us on the idea that, oh, you can get this blue light film on the glasses. And I was buying two sets, one for night and one for day. The day did not have blue light blocking. And we were so clear about that. But of course, in his paradigm and the narrative that we hear is blue light blocking is good. But it's like you're missing the whole point. There's a timeline to this and there's a reason behind it. But he gave it to you for the same price. He did. He did. And, and, and in <laughs> so fact, adding he, value. he did it by X. Well, I, yeah. we were very clear. And yeah. then I finally picked them up and he was like, oh, I did you a favor. And I actually upgraded both of them to blue light. And like, that's a problem, and we were really specific about this pair not having yeah. the, the the that coding. But I just people are missing the why behind it. They're missing the wisdom, and they're just hearing the trend. Yeah. So again, it's easy to demonize, but we need to take a step back and actually realize everything has its point in place. And blue light is powerful from alertness, and because yeah, you know it's at, we've got the highest blue light frequency in the middle of the day and that's when we should be most alert and that is a great thing so if you're trying to do a body of work yes get it yourself exposed to the blue light so when you're in that deep work block expose yourself to the blue light for myself I have a light lamp that emits the blue light frequency right like above me because it helps me get a bit more alert and yeah so it's just understanding time and place as you mentioned throughout that cycle so Making sure when you wake up in the morning, if you wake up and say you have to catch an early flight or whatever that may be, don't expose yourself to light. Minimize it as much as possible. Put some blue light blocking glasses on at that time until you get to your normal wake time. Then you can expose yourself to light. Or keep light low. Or keep light and low. And keep light low. So there's yeah. an and or situation. If you don't have really good quality blue light blocking glasses, yeah. which we can provide in the show notes, a really reputable source that we get ours and all of our exec clients. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of like keep it low, keep it slow. If yeah. you're supposed to be asleep. Yeah. Yeah. And just try to mimic the natural cycle as much as possible. Um, but yeah, again, we covered this mostly in the sleep podcast. So I'm not going to dive into it too much, but I just think I just wanted to comment because we're talking about fundamentals and I think circadian rhythm is so vital mm-hmm. in understanding light um, and then the other things that mimic that as well and impact that. So let's talk about food. Oh, before we do that, can I talk about how profound wearing blue light blocking glasses was driving home that night. Yeah, I think it's good. Thing. Okay, so I've driven home a lot at night, whether it be a late flight um, coming in or, um, you know, just going to an activity. And whenever I dro- drive long distances at night, right before I go to bed, I'm always wired. Like, even if it's been a slow drive, an hour and a half, there's not a lot going on. I am wired, even though I'm tired. And I know this is only a subset of one, and I'm looking forward to reproducing this. But well, yeah, subset of two, because I, like, well, I told you prior to it, you're going to That's true. It. <laughs> but wearing those blue light blocking glasses driving home that night, no issue. Like, as soon as I got home, I was tired. I didn't feel as wired. 
Uh, nothing had really changed outside of like it was the same trip, same duration, same road. Um, but I just, I could not believe how easy it was for me to get to sleep. Yeah, because most people associate that the alertness as having to concentrate while driving. But when really, for the most part, I get the concentration is, it has a small element to play, but it's the lights that's kind of beaming into your face because they're bright. They are really bright. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to point yeah. that because we're talking about practical yeah. tips and ways that we're actually using tech or new science or tools to make a better life. And I, I feel like that is an absolutely non-negotiable for me moving forward. hundred percent. Yeah. So like the other elements that shift that circadian rhythm that are really important to talk about is food. So just making sure like how often, like if you're traveling, for example, you're going overseas, you're going to a different time zone. Ask yourself the question of, you know, like think about the time zone you're going to and then ask yourself the question, would I have breakfast at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m.? You know, you're not going to eat in those windows of time. So just staying aware of when you're eating because that is going to drastically shift your skating rhythm because, yeah, like the amount of people that will be on a plane and they'll just snack throughout the whole time and not think anything of it. But it's so critical to be stuck in the time zone that you're either going to but this also applies for when you're not traveling as well. So don't have any midnight snacks. Do not um, wake up early and have some food. If, like, For example, if you're going somewhere early in the morning than you normally would, do not have food straight away if you can. Try to minimize that to when you would normally awake. So take food with you instead of having that. So it's just about understanding that that is going to have a critical part to play with shifting that circadian rhythm because it tells your body that it's time to be awake, it's time to be alert. We need to allow the body to still stay in that resting place. Which is powerful. So I just want to double tap into what you said before. So a really powerful way to navigate jet lag or to completely avoid it. So short term, if you're only going to be in a different place or a different time zone for a short period of time, the way to try to avoid or, or, or eliminate jet lag is to mimic your eating times of your native time zone. So like you mentioned, if you're flying to the US uh, and perhaps, you know, you're getting up. You're, say East Coast, because West Coast, Coast is pretty similar. That's yeah. true. So say you're going to the East Coast of the US and the time zones are quite opposing or different in the state, depending on what time of the year it is. So try to stick to your native time zone and the times you would eat for as long as you're in that new time zone. Now, again, if you're there short term, that's that's what you're supposed to do to try to kind of eliminate or reduce jet lag. If you're going to be there for long term, then you can start to slowly change your body to the new eating times. But there is a lot of fascinating research that says that circadian rhythm and your ability to adjust to new time zones or to eliminate the impact of changing time zone is to keep your eating times the same as your native time zone. And light as well, as we talked about. Light, yeah. yeah. But again, like so, so, so these types of things that actually just so powerful, you just have no clue until you're, you're told. Yeah, and coffee is another perfect example of that as well. And I think too many people have their coffee straight as they wake up, you know, it's the first thing they do. But again, we've already listed, you know, you have to have your water first. <laughs> and ideally, we want to be at least waiting 90 minutes from our normal waking time. I want to state this normal waking time um, to have that coffee. Reason is we want our adenosine to build up because otherwise, uh, like, sorry, adenosine to go away. So, because uh, our adenosine is our sleep debt. So once we want that to kind of just wash out, once that's washed out, then we have our coffee. Otherwise, 
you're going to have a horrible afternoon crash because yeah, your adenosine is all out of whack. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked more about that in the sleep episode as well. Uh, But if you love that cup of coffee or cup of joe, as soon as you wake up and you have to wake up early, ideally make it decaf. So maybe from a habit perspective, you might like that or feel like you need it to be alert. But from a health perspective, switch to decaf until at least 90 minutes after your normal waking time. Yeah, keeping in mind that it's still not ideal, but it's better. Yeah. Because, you know, with even with decaf, there is a marginal amount of caffeine associated with that, depending what type of decaf you're having. And just on another side is often decaf can be a little bit more um, preservatives put in there. So just making mm-hmm. sure it's a Swiss press. Um, decaf uh, that just means as a water press it's not a chemical press yeah um, but again coffee. water is the priority yeah. but I'm just thinking for our hustlers you know yeah. let's just be real yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know you, where, are the, where are the levers and the things you can pull to kind of make yeah. it still work for you or tea tea or might be a good option mm. um, just make sure it doesn't have any caffeine because that's the yeah. point isn't it or alternatively you could go to like a mushroom kind of brew as well um, which is another good option what mushroom brew would you recommend uh, so we, we love flow state um, so flow state uh, you've got, got an AM blend AM don't blend they? yeah so again it's not going to have the caffeine so it's not going to have the adenosine effect but you've got the lion's mane in there which is going to be super powerful from mental acuity standpoint um, and just alertness and recollection of words yeah. yeah, and we have a 15% coupon code too, yes, we so we will put that into the show notes. So if you want to give Flow State a go, uh, yeah, just use the, the coupon code that we've got in the, in the episode notes. Yeah, um, yeah. so like these things are important to understand from circadian rhythm, that side of things. Um, is there anything else that you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the fascinating aha moment, again, is with the coffee understanding how coffee has its mode of action around the adenosine mimicry. Mm. So it wasn't until I understood what that meant. And you don't have to understand what it means if you're listening. You're like, ugh, just give me the bottom line. But the 90-minute rule (laughs) after your normal waking time is a way to ride that wave in a way that isn't going to erode your long-term health or even short-term health, to be frank. And so that, I think... Ah, there's just so many things. Once I know why, I'm like, why do not? Why do people not get taught this? Because understanding means you're more likely to comply, mm. um, and understanding also means you can share and model better behaviour to not only your own kids but also your workmates uh, or your partner. So I, again, all we are trying to do is educate so you can make more empowered decisions like this. Yeah, and for this one, I need to give kudos to Andrew Huberman. Like, he's the one that actually opened my eyes to this one, and I think it's important to state. Like, he, I hadn't thought about it in that context before, and he brought it to my attention, and I think it's a really important thing to, um, to make that shift mm. because it's been quite pivotal for us. Yeah, and let's look at movement. Okay, so you're going to laugh. My, one of my first assignments at university on a, it was actually weirdly enough a marketing paper that I did was to research something and then present it. I, I don't even remember the context outside of that. And do not, I didn't know what I was thinking when I chose this particular topic. But the topic was around how important it is for your, your circulatory system to be massaged Mm. to get the best kind of oxygen distribution to your brain, to other extremities. And because arteries don't have valves, 
So I've got no backflow. All that's pushing, it's like a, it's like a hose and the, and, and the power is the heart. So you've got this complete pushing of this, this blood flow through these arteries that've got no valves. So there's no backflow, you know, valve stopping it from going backwards. That's pushing it out and equally veins, which do have valves, which prevent backflow, but it's got to get from like your toes up back up to your body. And if you're sitting a lot, and you're not moving your body, it's really hard for your heart to kind of keep pumping and then by, by pressure push all the, 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 the venous blood back. And this is where muscles, muscles are actually your little helpers, particularly of your veins and other uh, you know circulatory system where it actually, it massages the internal capillaries and structures, including veins, to get that blood back. And my, my assignment and my, my presentation was all about how important it is, particularly for students who are sitting so much, and how important it is for, for cognitive ability to get the, the oxygen back up to their brain, that they move their body, whether it be walking, whether it be kind of like static, eccentric or concentric kind of movements in one place if you're just doing toe raises, but to actually get your body using the massage property of muscle contraction to help with your circulatory system. Yeah, and I think the key thing with this is it's not doesn't need to be intense exercise. Like it is very simple kind of exercises to kind of get that lymphatic system working, and in the, the, the circulatory, the circulatory system. system. So just by just getting yourself out for a walk, you know, and like if you've ever had a walking meeting, you're so much more alert, switched on, and in just flow. Think, just in flow, thinking clearly. So it, like it's. Because you're getting blood to your brain for a change, you know. And I think the key thing which I find is the frustrating thing that I often have to unravel with clients is they think they can just, you know, sit down all day and then do their one-hour workout in the gym that evening or morning, whichever their preference is, and that is enough to to combat all their sitting down all day. I would much rather them not do that workout and have incidental movement every hour for maybe just, you know, walking out the door and back, you know, whatever that is, you know. Like, it doesn't have to be much does not have to be much, but just building an incidental movement, parking your car further away, you know, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, simple things that will make a profound difference that you'll actually outweigh the benefit of an hour in the gym lifting weights. Yeah. And I think trying to create systems and processes to create those micro pauses is actually really important because for example I find I get into flow and when I'm in flow I can be doing that thing for hours and and realize I've been sitting this whole time uh, that's why we have a stand up sit down desk so there is a little bit of movement there but I almost need to set alarms every sort of 45 50 minutes of, of cycle time of you know thinking flow time to just wake me up and get me walking downstairs maybe walk walk out of the house yes or go you know if I'm at work walking around the lake well that leads to our tradian cycles right so we have a 90 minute focus cycle and this is where it's really important to understand that our brains work in systems and there's an old tradian system so it's a 90 minute system so we want to have these blocks and actually divide them up into blocks and give ourselves enough rest in between. And that is when we get the movement in. So setting yourself up for a 90-minute block continues. And you can only get a few of them in a day. Like you need to understand that you can't just stay at your desk all day. And this is, I think, the difference where we move from this society in which we were manufacturer workers and we're just doing monotonous kind of building of products along a manufacturing line, uh, which doesn't require much cognitive thinking. But because we are cognitive workers now for the most part most of us 
generally are behind computers, really having to think through what we're doing. We can't work in the same fashion. That nine to five is gone. Like the nine to five does not work. Plus, we're available 24-7, so the nine to five is bled anyway. Yeah, unless you're really, really protective of your time, which yeah. is another, that's a whole yeah, another a, That's a boundaries there. thing. Yeah. But yeah, so with the um, understanding your work structure is understanding you're only going to get a certain amount of uh, ultradian cycles or 90-minute cycles that you can actually be productive and work. So you need to be very smart around how you structure it in your day. And you'll probably get two, maybe three if you're lucky. But you need to train this and you need to set it up, you set up your day in a way that allows you to do that. And giving yourselves the, enough recovery time in between where you're getting away from that short sight of a screen and getting yourself into an expansive view um, and training those eyes because your eyes are just getting taxed by just staring at this fine thing that's just going to help open up that parasympathetic system and the rest and digest system and just calm your system down and allow you to your eyes to reset. Mm. Um, I mean, it's not even an ophthalmology issue around your eyes' ability to focus, but like we talked about in the stress episode, where when you when you focus so much intently on one small place, it creates this tunnel vision, which is almost by nature triggering a sympathetic nervous system response so it's like okay i'm focused that's what i'm looking at whereas as you mentioned going out and try to you know bring out your periphery and open your eyes to ideally an environment where it's giving you awe and making you feel you know expansive can help to you know keep that parasympathetic running throughout the day in a way that's creating a healthy balance between the two yeah and then obviously the other thing that i'd love to get into at some point it will definitely be a podcast on this is something that i strive for as much as possible is attaining flow states um but we won't touch on that too much right now but the key thing to understand with flow states is you can't have flow without structure you need structure to attain flow um, and it's often something that is really misunderstood because often it's the creatives, it's the artists, it's the, they don't seem to have much structure in their life. But how that, if you actually look at how they attain these kind of states, is there's a set structure that builds them towards it, or the, those are the best at attaining it, at least. So, can you explain flow state just in case? We've got some listeners that just don't know what that means. They hear it as a buzzword bingo, but they're like, I don't know what that is, or I may not have even achieved it. Yeah, so flow state is where time dilates and constricts at the same time, you know, like it's often described as, you know, the surfer surfing that wave, you know, if you kind of, you're surfing along this wave, you can't think about anything else. You're just in the moment. You're just so present. The past, the future is just non-existent. You're just in this beautiful flow state where it feels like you've got the time's just really weird. And you've got good access of your thinking. You feel inspired, creative. Yeah. The work just flows out of you. I mean, that's yeah. really kind of what it means. It's like if whatever you're doing in that moment, whatever that task is, the work becomes easy and fluid. Yeah. So if you've ever sat down and do a piece of work and then you look up and there's been a couple of hours have gone by. And, and you've you done like so much good work. So too. much good work. And you're like, where did the time go? You most likely attain flow. Yeah. So it's like that's what flow state is. It's those times in which you've really doesn't feel like you've done anything, but you've done so much, uh, or you've you're in that perfect sweet spot essentially. And that's not just for cognitive work as well. It's also in uh, physical things. So like I said, surfing or maybe some 
whatever sport it is for you, um, where you're just kind of in this beautiful flow state. I think accuracy sports is quite a good one for it. You know, attaining a, a beautiful flow state when you're out doing archery or shooting or, um, yeah, then other great ways of just kind of just being in the zone is the other, another word for it. And that's, if you think about from a life's work, life's purpose, life force perspective, the way that working environments are created as a, a series of distractions, mm. right? So it's almost like if you can, through a process of following us, you know, on, on the podcast and, and trying to kind of understand your boundaries, understand your life's why, your purpose, what you're put on this earth to do, your talents, the things that just light you up like the 4th of July and create, again, ways to protect that in your workspace or, you know, create these these rhythms that enhance flow, like if you could get more people doing good, incredible work that lights them up, that's efficient, that's effective, that's productive, that makes them feel incredibly fulfilled and at peace with their ability to contribute to the world, like that's a very exciting and wonderful place to be. Yeah. And like I... I do want, like, the reason I talk about flow here, because I know we are talking about fundamentals today, right? And what we want our kids to have, and the reason that it's in, the, in this podcast is because, as you mentioned, it is just so critical to living a fulfilled, purposeful life. And there's no better feeling than when you're attaining those flow states. And, you know, kids are the perfect example of being able to attain flow because they can drop in and out of it. Because the best way to think about flow is, like, when they're playing. They're, they're in a state of flow when they're playing. And I think that's one of, one thing that we forget as adults is how to play and how to be present because play is present. Um, animals are another good example of this. You know, they're, they're not worrying about the past or the future. They're just happy right now. <laughs> like, um, so. And that brings us to mindfulness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which we know we've spoken about with food and, mm. and just being mindful with that ritual or the way to fuel ourselves. But, but, I'm stoked that more schools are doing more in the space of teaching kids mindfulness. And yoga is a big you know, supporter of this because it's movement through mindfulness. But I think in the past we've said the most important take-home message from I think at least two of our podcasts yeah. was around if you can create a gap between trigger and response by being more in the present, the more powerful all the other nice to haves can be yep and like like i said you can't attain flow without being present you have to be deeply present so uh, i think that's why mindfulness is just so critical uh like if you want to be free from anxiety depression you know you have to practice mindfulness and like it's often demonized as, as again you know is this woo woo it's um religious or it's uh, there's this stereotype around it again, which is shifting. Like it's good to see that shifting. We're seeing more and more popularity of it, I guess. Um, but it's it's clear. Like mindfulness is science. It is clear science. Like if you actually look at the literature, it is unbelievable how powerful something so simple is and something that is so critical and again this is the reason why when i created the four pillar philosophy mindset is number one <laughs> and when we're talking about mindset we're talking about firstly but you've got to be present to be mindful right um and that's why it's number one because you, you just presence is so essential for life. and i think the resistance we get it for people who have really busy minds and, mm. and can't quite frankly calm it 
So there is a potential genetic element to, you know, be able to calm or degrade those thinking chemicals in your brain. Which we both have. Which we both have, yeah, which I can't wait to get to. Uh, But we also have lifestyle factors. Again, stress is a big part of that kind of flighty thinking. But we've got one particular, actually there's two executives we work with. And uh, one of them is very analytical. So his wife goes to yoga, she practices mindfulness, she journals, et cetera, et cetera. And he resists that because that's just not, he, he doesn't believe that's how he's built. And so I totally get that on one hand because I was that person where I was like, I cannot sit down for five minutes and just sort of be with my breath. And it's been, it's taken time and different techniques and tools that I can pull away and, mm. and, and even technologies to be able to calm my mind to, to have that practice where we can meditate for up to an hour. And it's like, okay, it's part of our life. But one thing he did say is, and, and I and I just talked to him about is, where do you currently find flow? Mm. For him, it's playing guitar and it's reading. And so, my my goal for him isn't to start five minute meditations. Mm. It's do more of the things that give you flow, because that in itself is a mindfulness practice. Particularly if you already identify that some activities get you there. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think in the background of that is trying to craft that kind of process. And again, like I think too often people think it has to be this very long structured process in which I've talked about, you know, all you need to start with is one to two minutes, like basic. And like you don't need to plug yourself into a guided meditation. You don't have to um, stay completely present for that time because your mind is going to wander and that is absolutely natural. I think that there's a fallacy around that where people think that you know mindfulness is an empty mind. No, there's the opposite of mindfulness. Mindfulness is being mindful on one thing, trying to be present on that one thing, um, or can be multiple things, but it is being present on something. Even if it means present to observe the monkey. Yeah, exactly. Like, can you sit there? And this is why I will yarn and yarn and yarn mm. about Sam Harris's yeah. waking up, where he gives the concept of watch the watcher. Mm. And what I love about that is you literally take a step back and pretend like you are a person watching the show. So you Mm. become the watcher watching what your mind is playing out. And so I love how powerful that is from a perspective of just observing. And I, I really hope that the kids that are being taught a lot of the stuff is they're kind of giving different frame of references that allow them to kind of find a technique that works for them to be more observant. Yeah, and quite simply, like, as I say to any kind of new client that's taking on breath work is all I want you to do is count 20, 30 breaths. That's all you need to do. And by the nature of focusing on your breath, you'll naturally slow your breath down and you're going to engage that parasympathetic system. So it's already stacking two really powerful things. You're firstly present on your breath, slowing that breath down, it just gets you into this calm, mindful state, which allows you to think better, perform better. You're just in a much better state. Yeah, and the crazy thing about all of this is we all we have the tools that are, are for the most part free to do all of this. It's just not having the knowledge on how to use the tools. Not even that. I think the knowledge is there. It's I. I th- For the most part, like there's definitely some elements to that we're obviously plugging in today to kind of help round those edges a little bit. But I think the key thing that I think is missing is necessarily the importance and how to integrate it into your life in a very seamless fashion. Because I think, like I said, there's so many people focusing on the bells and whistles, but forgetting the real fundamentals of health. And 
today's lifestyle is designed to distract mm. and busy you know busy us from the fundamentals which is is who we are and how we take care of the home that we've got to try to keep safe and working well for the rest of our lives yep absolutely yeah all right well i think i think we've naturally found an endpoint to this particular episode looking forward to double tapping into some of the more nuanced areas but I think if we could get our 9 and 12 year old to kind of understand all of the topics we've talked about today, it would really put them in good stead for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and there's still so much more we could have got into today. And uh, we're a little bit bound for time right now. For those of you that are not on our VIP list, you haven't, probably haven't seen uh, the behind the scenes of the frustrations that we've had today because we've had to film this a few extra times. So we've actually, our podcasting window has definitely tipped over and I'm dropping into a client very shortly. <laughs> Uh, and I still haven't had breakfast. Um, yeah, so we need to get out of here. So, so for those who do want to see more behind the scenes, make sure you sign up for our VIP subscribers so you get those kind of bloopers or kind of what we're doing in the back end. But also, as we like to wrap up every episode or what we're trying to do with every episode is, what is the one thing that you would uh, think is the most important? I would love to see myself and others honour food and nourishment more. Like... Even creating a practice of ritual around breathing, around taking a pause, which can be meditative, before you even start to nourish yourself and be aware of the fact that you are supposed to be nourishing yourself, right? This is a finely tuned engine that deserves to be taken care of. So outside of what we've already said are kind of like my take-homes in previous episodes, I, I do want to give space for that ritual and that honoring of the body and the mind to, to do its best work. Yeah, and for me, I'm going to go into breathing correctly because something that is so systemic, right? Like it's something that we're continuously doing. Like you don't breathe, you're going to die pretty quickly. It doesn't matter if you when you get to food or water, you know. Well, lack of oxygen is the only cause of death. Oh, yeah, technically, yeah. yeah. Without <laughs> oxygen, you're dead. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, and because it, it's just so continuous and so frequent, that's what I want to focus on today because I think if you can change that, you can really change your trajectory in life. So getting people nasal breathing, moving from the mouth breathing to the nasal breathing. Yes, mouth breathing has its place. We didn't really talk about that today because it comes into a performance element. So yeah, I'm not going to go into that now because it comes back into kind of what I was doing in Ironman, but you can think about your mouth breathing as your throttle. If you really need to put the throttle down and you're doing some really intense exercise, yes, then you can breathe through your mouth, but majority of your life, you should be nasal breathing. And, and when you're talking, it's often through your mouth and your nose is a conjoint. So mm. again, it's like there's nuances to it, but from a baseline perspective, breathe through your nose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As our podcast progresses, we'll keep digging deeper into powerful themes of health and wellness, including client case studies and how we've used advanced science and not so common sense to help them live a life more extraordinary. If you feel this information has been helpful, please like, share, follow and subscribe to get notified of new episode drops and to support our mission to make the path to vibrant well-being less lonely and confusing.